Let's open up the Bible together then. We're going to go into 1 Chronicles 29 again for the last time. We have been looking at this extraordinary chapter because it lays down some of the patterns of what God calls for in his people to be involved in his mission in filling the earth with his glory. At the time, it was an invitation from David for the people of Israel to build a temple, the bricks and mortar temple that was in Jerusalem and stood for a long time as an extraordinary structure that caused people to gasp when they saw it. But God always had it as his intention that it would be temporary because he wanted to do something better. He wanted to fill the earth with his presence by building his church and sending his church into every corner of the globe so that everyone would have access to the knowledge of God, which is why you can go to Tanzania and Indonesia and the kind of countryside provinces of China and the far reaches of deepest, darkest um, uh, Russia, and you can know brothers and sisters in Christ there because God's glory is invading the earth. And that's what is the mission of the church. And so what we see is the patterns of how God wants to invite his people into that in this chapter are still relevant and resonate with us today. So we've been thinking about um, things like what it means to be consecrated to God, what it means to be holy, what it means to worship God, um, what it means to be generous to the God's mission. All that stuff comes through in this chapter. And we're coming to the very end. So I'll just read, first of all, that question in verse 5. Who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then as the story unfolds, they have an extraordinary outpouring of generosity from the church. It's, it's, uh, sorry, from the Israelites. It's remarkable. The people get on board with it. And then we'll read from verse 20. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly <clears throat> blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness." Today, we're going to be thinking a little bit about what I think is a truly fundamental um, subject, which is that of joy in God's people. And uh, I want us to think about this for a couple of reasons. One is that it's my certain um, <coughs> conviction that not all of you, excuse me, <coughs> there's no water left, is there? I won't have milk, but um, <coughs> thank you, bro. Did any of you watch The Apprentice last season? The bit with the Australian guy, it's just like, <clears throat> all the way through. I'm not, it's not nerves, it's just for some reason. Anyway. So two reasons then. One is that I'm, I'm pretty certain that not all of you um, have experienced joy in your Christian walk. For whatever reasons. And... The Bible would tell you not only that you can, but that you should. And also, I think it's my suspicion that because we come from such diverse backgrounds in church, uh, church backgrounds, and not all of you are from church at all, but maybe you've had a taster of what church is like, 
that maybe you haven't always experienced church as something full of joy. Um, and in terms of what we want to build here, what I believe Christ wants to build here, there must be joy. We can have joy and there must be joy and that joy needs to be at the very center of what it means to be a church. Now, the reason why I think this is so important comes down to a couple of things. One is that in the Bible, you see that God himself is joyful. I don't know what your um, understanding or impression is of God, um, but if you, if you know your scriptures, you'll see that despite the fact that he expresses anger or judgment and wrath, which is often people's um, predominant impression of him sometimes, he is in himself a God of joy. Paul calls him in 1 Timothy, he calls him the blessed God. And that word blessed is interchangeable in the language in the Greek in which he was writing with the word happy, the happy God. We see other places like, I think one of the songs we sung today was probably a kind of a meditation on, on this verse in Zephaniah 3, where it says, the Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. He'll exult over you with loud singing. It's portraying the God that we believe in as a God who is happy, who is in himself joyful. I think also about places like in Matthew 18 or Luke 15, where Jesus tells parables about, about God saving individuals, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son. He talks about the joy that God has in saving the one who's gone astray or the one who is lost. He's talking about God's delight in saving people. And in Hebrews 12, uh, where it, those remarkable verses about Jesus, so it talks about, let us look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. It says that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. That the thing that motivated Christ to go through the deepest, darkest suffering imaginable was the motivation of joy, that Jesus knew that he would have happiness in gathering his church to himself. So God himself is happy, and he then wants his people to reflect the joy of what it means to be owned by him. I, um, it, I know that if you, in life, are miserable, people always are going to start questioning why. Why are you unhappy? If you come back from work every day and you're miserable, people are going to cast a judgment on what your job is like, aren't they? I, I, in some cultures, um, it's said that when you get married, you, one of the things that can reflect your happiness in marriage is that you, you start to put on weight. And particularly if the husband gets fat, then it's, it's a testimony to all his friends and relations and everyone around that he is happy with his wife. And a failure to, to put on weight is a kind of a slur on her character in some ways. Now, maybe I took that a little bit too much to heart in my early years of marriage, and I've been working pretty hard ever since to undo that. But the, the point is this, that God gets glory from his people's joy. And the opposite is also true, that when, when God's people are depressed and lack joy, that shouts a message to the world about the God that we worship, doesn't it? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor of Westminster Chapel across the river, wrote a book which has sold 
um, countless copies called Spiritual Depression. And although that's the title, the book is really about finding joy in God. And he opens it in, in uh, the second chapter. And actually, let me see. No, the first chapter. <clears throat> He's laying out some of the reasons why we need joy. He says this. In a sense, a depressed Christian, or we could say a depressing church, is a contradiction in terms. And he, the Christian, is a very poor recommendation for the gospel. We're living in a pragmatic age. People today are not primarily interested in truth, but they're interested in results. The one question they ask is, does it work? They're frantically seeking and searching for something that can help them. Now, we believe that God extends his kingdom partly through his people. He says over the page, Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums. And too often give this appearance of unhappiness and of lack of freedom and absence of joy. And there's no question at all but that, that, but that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. I don't know if you agree with that. This is why churches across the country are emptying. Because people don't look at the church and think that's where I can have joy. Because the people in the churches aren't always joyful. And that then is a slur on the God who we claim to worship. So I think this is of absolute highest order importance for us. Not only individually in terms of your walk with God, but also as a church. What are we building here? This is the question I'm wanting to ask. Why are we doing this? What is it that would glorify Jesus most in terms of an expression of his body in this part of London at this time? And I think that this is one of the most important things, that we have a church that is full of the joy of God. How then? Let me just add to that, by the way, that this is something that God commands, isn't it, in the scriptures. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, um, rejoice when you're persecuted. Why? Because it, it, it says something about the God, the rock that you believe in. I read it at the beginning, Philippians 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. Now, I know that there's got to be loads of caveats to that. And we need to always have a balance and an awareness that there are circumstances and personalities and all these things in the mix. But I think for every one of us, the pursuit of joy in God is, is at center of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to know him. How, then, should we enjoy God? That's the question we're going to think about. Back in 1 Chronicles 29, David opened this section after all that's happened. He's just been praying and praising God, and then he turns to the people and says, Bless the Lord your God, in verse 20. And then a number of things unfold, and then it says right in that last verse we read, that they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. And I think these few verses give us real insight into how the Israelites understood that they were meant to enjoy God. And I want to um, talk to you about joyful fear, joyful worship, and joyful living. Beginning then with this first answer to the question, how? By pointing to the fear they have of God. I know that fear and joy are not words that you usually mix together. So when we think about the things that you're afraid of, you think about heights and death and exams, and interviews, and everything that 
makes you miserable in life. And that's, you put those in one bucket. And on the other hand, you think about things that give you joy, whether it's friends, whether it's indulgence, whether it's um, the pleasures of life, whatever it is. We have these two different buckets, fears and joys, and rarely do those things meet. But the Israelites, and when you see biblical faith, you see something that somehow mingles fear and joy in a profound way. That in some sense, the fear that they experience in God enhances and encourages a deeper joy in their knowledge of him. I think that reverent fear and deep joy actually belong together. You think about reverence or fear without joy is something cold and hard. Like what you might experience in a gulag or a concentration camp. That's fear without joy. But joy that doesn't have fear is usually something that's quite light, quite frothy, like a Milky Way or a children's TV or something like that. Joy without fear. But when fear and joy are mingled together, you experience joy in in a deeper way than than the light-hearted joy that you can have in some parts of life. So I think about the joy that you can have after birth. Birth is one of, certainly in history, is one of the most dangerous things that a person can ever go through. But the joy that comes through in the safe arrival of a child into the world is heightened becomes imprinted on your mind and your memory because of the dread, because of the fear, because of the danger. You think about what it is when you go through exams and you pass and you do well. The joy is enhanced because of all the fear and the dread that was in the run-up to that. I remember taking one of my Greek exams when I was um, studying theology and it was the only time I ever threw up in front in before an exam but I did I, I hurled minutes before I went into the exam hall and I did all right in fact I did uh, better than anyone in the class but that was because the competition was so low um, <laughs> but the joy was enhanced when I got my results certificate through because of the fear that I'd experienced in the run-up to it that somehow those things create a deeper, more lasting impression on your mind than just pleasures that you experience on a day-to-day basis, don't they? You could think about what it means uh, for a mountaineer to climb Everest. The reason why people do it is for the pleasure of it, ultimately. Otherwise, they wouldn't bother. There has to be some pleasure, some gain at the end. But it's the fear, it's the dread, it's the knowing that you could slip to your death, that you could be snowed in and, or be caught in an avalanche or, or um, fall off a rock or something and die or just have a lack of oxygen. Somehow, the reverent awe of the experience heightens and enlivens and deepens and makes the joy more real than something light, something easily gained. And it seems to me that when you're looking at the biblical faith, that we're somehow seeing the marrying of fear and joy. You can see it here in this chapter where David tells them to bless God. And it says, all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. Not because they fear David in the same way they fear God, but because he is God's representative for them, their head. And so to honor David is to honor God. But ultimately, it comes from the deep, awesome fear of God that the Israelites had. Now, 
I think that in terms of your own walk with God, that if you only have the fear of God, you see him as, um, as a judge, you can, never know, you can never know joy in God, can you? But the opposite is also true, that if you have no fear of God, if your understanding of God is something anemic and thinned out, so that he's no longer the one with fire in his eyes who hates sin and kills people from time to time, as he does in the scriptures, if he's just your chum, your pal, then I think that you can't know God, you can't know the joy in God that it comes through the fear of God which the Israelites had. And so, for me, when I'm seeing, reading the Bible and thinking about what it is to build a church which is going to bring him most glory, one of these things is that it will be a church that's full of joy, but that joy will be enhanced by the reality of who God is in his awesome power and might. You see it in Acts 2 where the church is in the throes of revival. The Holy Spirit is falling out on God's people in profound ways and people are joining the church in, in droves, in massive numbers. It says in Acts 2 when Luke is kind of trying to capture the atmosphere of what it was like in the church. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul. There was a deep and profound fear of God in the early church. That while they celebrated the fact that they were being saved, there was a tangible sense of his presence such that they despised sin. They knew that God was the judge. They would see it in a short time later when God would strike down Ananias and Sapphira and kill them on the spot because they try and lie to God's Holy Spirit. But it says just a, couple, a few lines after that, that day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That the church, the early church, somehow brought together this, this fear of God with this gladness in God and the one enhanced the other. And so when you're asking me, well, what does a, a biblical church look like? I think part of the answer is this, that its joy is contingent on its it's understanding of the God that we worship. It's dependent on that. That if you have a diminished God, you can't ever know the joy that God wants to put in his people. And sadly, this is something we're seeing all the time around us, that in an effort perhaps to draw more people in, in an effort to appeal to a disenfranchised, secularist, Western nation such as ours. A lot of people think that they need to tame God and cut off the rough edges and portray a picture of him that is weakened and deficient and lacking the full portrayal of what he is in the scriptures. And we don't want that. We want to have, as David and his people did, this reverent awe before him that is what causes us to, to experience the joy of God. Why? Because the same God who could judge you is the God who has saved you by his sweet mercy and his kindness. 
The gospel sits against the backdrop of God's anger and wrath. That's what the Israelites knew on this day. That's what gave them gladness. They're bowing before a God who could have just flicked them away into the sea. And they're saying, God, why is it that you want to put your temple with us and be here with us? It's because of your grace and your kindness. The fear of God enhanced the joy in God. That's the first thing. The second is this, that they had joyful worship. Now, Christian joy should always be there in our worship. And I don't know if you associate worship with joy. For some of you, you've probably grown up or been to churches where worship is not a joyful experience because it's full of religiosity and somber spirit. I don't think that reflects the biblical portrayal of what worship should be. Worship should obviously involve all the emotions. But often, in the name of reverence, in the name of respect, people have sapped all the joy out of worship. On the other hand, some of us have grown up or seen or witnessed or been part of churches where things are made so twee and so light that what it was designed to, to enhance our joy actually ends up just emptying us of joy. That there's a, there isn't that sense of God's mighty presence. Um, and I don't think that's what we want to aim for either. God's ideal for Israel throughout the Bible was that their worship should be profoundly joyful, even as it's full of blood and gore and fire and smoke and ashes and beating of your chest and repentance and all these things. God, at the heart of it all, he wanted Israel to know joy in worship. So when you read your Old Testament and you're skimming through all the laws to do with the sacrifices, again and again, God tells his people. It's a command. He tells them that they need to rejoice. I'll only read to you just one example here in Leviticus 23, where God's giving them the, the guidelines for the Feast of Booths. And he says in verse 40, he says, You shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast. So one of the marks, you could even say this, that it's one of the distinctives of what made Israel's worship so unique in the world, was that it had to be full, God wanted it to be full of joy. How different from so much of the worship you see in churches being unfolding across this country. In Deuteronomy 12, in fact, when God's giving them instructions about what it means for them to go and take possession of the land and then fill the land with the kind of worship that he wants, he gives them these instructions. He tells them that they need to go and rip down all of the idolatrous ways of worshipping in the land. So the high places where they would have altars and people sleeping with prostitutes and pillars that they would worship and all this stuff and the idols that were carved out of wood. He says, go and smash the lot of them. And he says in in Deuteronomy 12, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But then, by way of contrast, he says, this is how I want you to worship me. And he starts to describe the way that Israel ought to worship. And it says this, You shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice. 
you and your households in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. The reason why I point that out is because I want you to see this. That in, in God wanting the Israelites to smash down idolatry and false worship, he doesn't want them to replace it with something deficient and something that's lacking in any sense. So what he says you need to have in its place is worship that shouts to the nations that you enjoy the God you worship. So we don't exchange the pleasures of the world for something miserable when we, when we come to Jesus and when we become Christians. We exchange all of what we call idolatry, false worship, in order to portray real joy that's found in God. That's what God wants in his people. Now you might ask, how, how is that going to be sustained? Because you know, there's only so many sacrificial feasts you can go to and still feel the same amount of joy and whatever. And I don't think the answer can be that they were to enjoy themselves because they were commanded to be joyful. I, I've been to you know, enough sort of dinner parties in that where the host is so stressed out because they want people to enjoy themselves that it saps all the joy out of the occasion. Usually it's my mum when she's like frantic at Christmas. Come on, have a great time. You know, it can't be like that. It can't be that God was commanding his people to enjoy themselves and then they just sort of wear a plastic smile as they go to temple. Why was it that the natural response of Israel was to enjoy worship? And I think the answer has to do with what we're seeing in this chapter in 1 Chronicles 29. That it says, this is how it talks about the worship in verse 21. It says, they offered sacrifices to the Lord... It talks about 3,000 animals being slaughtered that day. Now, I know, especially for the vegetarians among you, that this is pretty gruesome stuff and doesn't sound like a particularly enjoyable occasion. But you've got to keep in mind what it represented. When God was commanding Israel in the Feast of Booths to rejoice and have a feast, why was he doing that? Because they were setting up tents on their roofs, in their gardens, and living in them for seven days with their kids. And it was supposed to be an enjoyable experience because it shouted to each other and to the nations, God saved us from Egypt. The Feast of Booths was all about a reenactment of what it meant to be an Israelite in the wilderness. So if you're going to reenact what God's done, he saved you, and you're miserable, it means you don't count that salvation as of any worth to you and you're not telling the world that God is great. And here, similarly, when they're killing animals, at the heart of it is the understanding, the reenactment of sacrifices that would atone for their sin. And when you felt the weight of sin, the weight of guilt, the weight of condemnation, The knowledge that God could judge you in a moment. Seeing that animal die instead of you is a source of joy beyond imagination. So in one sense it's a reenactment of all the sacrificial system, but in another sense it's a pre-enactment of what Jesus would do on the cross for us. The reason why they have joy in their worship is because it is gospel-centered. 
is coming back to the cross where Christ's blood was poured out for us to save us and cleanse us and redeem us from our sins. So that the stuff that is weighing on your conscience is taken away and God says, I will remember your sins no more. The only response to that, the only right response to that is one of joy. I think the same is true in Christ's church, that when God's people are miserable, it dishonors, it dishonors Jesus. It dishonors the gospel, doesn't it? But worship that is centered around the cross is going to be full of joy. Even as we grieve our sin, even as we come to him in repentance, at the heart of it is joy, which is why God's church should be a happy place. And people should be discovering that happiness all the time. Let me bring you to the third and final thing that I see here, which is this, that there's joyful living. And I'll just try and explain to you what I mean here. It says in the last verse, verse 22, that they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. They ate and drank. Israelite worship was not just a kind of endless 24-7 singing festival, like a Bethel worship service, as great as that might be. It wasn't that. When God called his people to worship, numerous times he told them that they needed to feast They need to eat and they need to drink because in doing so, they're giving God glory and celebrating him. So I don't know if you've ever read this with much attention, but you know how in the Old Testament, God told his people they need to tithe. It's one of those um, well-known laws in the Bible that God called his people to give a tenth of everything they own and give it to to the, the Levites and the priests and so on. But actually, it was a little bit more complicated than that. When, when God told his people to tithe, he gave them three ways in which their, their tenth of their produce and their wealth was to be directed. Most of it, of course, would go to the Levites. So go to the guys who work in the temple and who are um, taking care of you spiritually. Another part of that tithe would go to the poor. So some of it's directed to the work in helping poor people. But the third section of that was meant to be set aside for partying. So you see it in Deuteronomy 14 where it says, it says verse 24 that if when you're traveling the way is too long, you can sell all your stuff, get some money, bring the money with you instead to the temple. And then it says verse 25, then you turn the money Uh, Sorry, you shall turn it into money and bind your money in your hand and go to the place the Lord your God chooses. And then he says, spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. God was telling his people that the way he wanted them to enjoy him was by feasting on his goodness. God had been kind to them in the year. He brought about another harvest they were then to enjoy the harvest and all of their earnings by celebrating together as part of their tithe. 
Now, it throws up all kinds of questions, doesn't it, about how you should think about giving to your church. Should you keep a part of it for buying a strong drink and meat and all this kind of stuff? I don't know. I'm going to leave that one with your consciences. But in Nehemiah 8, I just want to help you to see that this is something that the Israelites really took to heart. You remember the story of Nehemiah, how this is centuries after David. The Jerusalem's been flattened. The people have been exiled. Nehemiah is an official in a foreign empire, and he hears news that the walls of Jerusalem are, are gone. So he, he takes it upon himself to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the city. And when he does it, it, it kind of triggers like a spiritual revival in the people. In remembering who they are, we're Israel, they begin to feel grief over their sin. They start reading the law together. And Ezra, the priest, starts preaching to them line by line through the law of God. And there is a spiritual revival that breaks out throughout Israel. And it climaxes in Nehemiah chapter 8, where Nehemiah and Ezra start speaking to the people. And they say this. They say, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Now, that's interesting. They've been sinful, but Nehemiah thinks that the day is so holy that they shouldn't mourn before the God that they worship. Maybe that instinct came from his experience of serving a foreign emperor who he knew he could never be miserable in front of because then he could be fired or even worse, put to death. Which is why in Nehemiah 1, when he is feeling grieved about the city, he has to pray to God that he's not going to get killed when he goes and sees the empire emperor. So he's got this kind of sense that to honor God rightly, you shouldn't really be miserable in his presence at such an amazing occasion as this. And then he goes on and he says, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. I think Nehemiah knows his, his Bible. And he knows that while there's a place for mourning over sin, God is honored when we rejoice in his salvation. And he wants the people to rejoice by feasting and drinking. And then the fam famous line comes after that. He says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Israel, in other words, they understood that in order to enjoy God, part of it was feasting and drinking. That's why on 1 Chronicles 29, they finished their worship service by having this huge party. And it says that their hearts were glad. Now, the reason why I'm wanting us to just pay attention to this, you think this is a strange place to finish the series in this chapter. But I think it's really, really important. But sadly, through the centuries, Christians have got a pretty skewed idea of what spirituality is. That for, for many, spirituality is seen through just the lens of self-denial. I know that there's a place for self-denial in the Christian life. But maybe in reading about guys like John the Baptist, we've got this impression that that's the norm. So he's a guy who lived in the wilderness and wore animal skins and ate locusts and honey so he just scavenged for his life and people have thought that's what godliness looks like we need to be out of the world and not enjoying the things of the world because that's unspiritual and so on the back of that you had 
the various points, various sort of monastic movements arising in the history of the church. Guys who thought to themselves, in order to be godly, I need to withdraw from the pleasures of the world. And they start torturing their bodies by denying themselves sleep and um, observing these regular patterns of praying all through the day and all through the night in a way that almost is punishing yourself to win God's favor and his delight. An extreme example, you have someone like uh, Simeon of Stylites, a guy born around 390, who spent something like 30 years on top of a pillar in the desert. People raising food to him on some kind of winch system and drink to him. But he was, in essence, saying that in order to be to become godly, spiritual, I need to separate myself out from the pleasures of life. That's what devotion to God looks like. And then, of course, you throw into the mix another thing which I think some of us just take for granted, which is this idea that spiritual stuff is stuff that doesn't involve your body. So communion with God in the heart. And it's really just a Greek way of thinking that your body is just a kind of a nuisance, an encumbrance, a a necessary evil until you die. And eating and drinking are just stuff you've got to do in order to, to make it through life. But And certainly you can't enjoy them. You shouldn't enjoy things like sex, which is where, of course, ideas, anti-sex ideas and all that has come up in Christian history of what spirituality is. Now, I know that there are boundaries for that, so I'm not, but I'm not getting into that today. I think that when you know your Bible and you see stuff like this in the Bible, you realize that God wants his people to enjoy him in all the ways that he's provided. And on the one hand, that means shunning the idolatry of created stuff. So it's no use reading a passage like this and thinking, well, God wants me to be a glutton. Because that's trying to find in the things of the world what God alone can provide. And you'll become not only fat in body, but you'll become fat and lethargic spiritually as well. When we make created stuff idols. But there's another equally powerful danger, which is that Christians think that we need to be mean-spirited hyper-spiritual, and that this nonsense has creeped into the church and shaped the way that we think about what spirituality is. And my view, I think, which is a scriptural one, is that God, God wants us to receive everything with gladness. And that part of what it means to build a biblical church is to build a church that can enjoy the things God has given us together. I just want to close with three Words of advice on that point. Paul picks up on this very thing in 1 Timothy 4. And he says that some people in later times have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits. In other words, they've imbibed the teaching, he says, of demons. What teachings? That we should forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He says that this kind of self-denial is nothing but a doctrine of demons. And then he says this, which is what I think is biblical spirituality. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God 
and prayer. So in order for us to express the kind of spirituality that is biblical, while we don't want to fall into idolatry, we don't want to fall into mean-spirited, self-denying nonsense either, we want to firstly receive the things that God has given us with thanksgiving and be a people whose lives radiate the joy of God as our provider, as our source, as the one who feeds us and gives us drink. A second thing is this, that I think we need to find ways of redeeming the rhythms of life as an opportunity to enjoy God. We read from that passage in Acts 2 where Luke is trying to capture the the spirit of revival that's happening in the church. But let me read to you that whole chunk because I think it's so helpful. From verse 42, it says this, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What we have is a picture that could not be more removed from what so many people have come to understand church to be, which is that you go into a cold building, you find the same spot on the same pew, and you listen to some kind of worship service from the front, you feel some sense, some tingling sense of transcendence, and then you go home. Christ always intended that his people would be a body, a family, where the nations would find belonging in his kingdom and would know each other and love each other. And that at the heart of that was to be a joy that's like the joy you experience the best moments of your family life, if you've had those. Where you have pleasure in eating and drinking together, in playing games, in celebrating. Somehow the early church grasped this instinctively, that they weren't just called to some kind of cold obedience to God. They were called to be a body who enjoyed the rhythms of life. And it says that they were getting together every single day. I know, I don't know any church that does that, but surely at some level that's the benchmark of what it means to be the church as God intended. That we redeem the normal rhythms of life as an opportunity for celebrating Christ's body in the earth. The things you enjoy that we share together, meals, Beer, wine, going to the gym, playing your sports, whatever it is you do, that these become opportunities for God's church to be glued together in deeper bonds of love and in joy and in fellowship. Let me say last of all that I think that if we're going to follow a biblical pattern, there has to be some way in which we set aside some of our stuff for times of heightened celebration. That's what God wanted in his tithing, that people would enjoy him in the moments. And there's never more joy expressed in the Bible than when people come to know him. And I think that the church of God has to learn how to celebrate 
Just as Jesus said, God and all the angels celebrate in Matthew 18, Luke 15, that when one sinner repents, there's essentially a party in heaven. God wants his church to have that kind of an atmosphere. We're going to have so much to celebrate in the years to come. And we want to build a church that reflects the joy of God, that he is a happy God, and we are his happy people who enjoy him. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that while there are many, many counterfeits in the earth, Lord, of the pleasures that you created, counterfeit idols, counterfeit opportunities, Lord, it was you who made the earth and you made it good. And you made it a reflection of your creativity and your bounty and your happiness. And Lord, as your people, I pray that you would increase our joy. I pray you'd increase our joy against the backdrop of a real reverent awe of who you are. Increase our joy as we center our worship upon the gospel and on your blood that's poured out for us. And increase our joy as we become a community and a body and a church where lonely people and people who don't have happiness in you, yet find in the family, in God's people, a joy that is infectious. That we receive every gift with thanksgiving and we celebrate every meal and every good thing that happens in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be full of your spirit, Lord. We know that joy is a fruit of the spirit and we can't produce this, Lord. We can't manufacture the real thing. It has to be you. It has to be you breathing on us, Lord. It's an evidence that you're here, that, Lord, your church is a happy people. And I pray, Lord, that more and more we would find that that's true of us in a way that is contagious, in a way that affects our family lives and our conduct at work and that preaches to the world that, Lord, you are good, that we've tasted and seen that you are good. We thank you, Lord, that this is your desire and we want to walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.